So late last week, I tweeted my excitement over season two of Winning Time, the HBO series based upon my book Showtime, because it's launching on August 6th. And before I could blink, a man wrote back, that show is complete and total trash. Please do not support this infinite amount of pure and total shit. Only the man wasn't an ordinary man. It was Van Earl Wright, one of my all-time favorite sports broadcasters and a voice of my boyhood. Back in the day with CNN, Van Earl Wright was flashy and cool and funky and way off the hook. Here, this is what he sounded like 30 years ago. A's up 4-3 when, whoo, they can say go, bash, one of his own, a three-run shot. Over the wall of left, fail. And now, on Twitter, he's dumping on my show. And, I don't know, Van Earl Wright knows who I am. He watched Winning Time. He tweeted at me. Is it weird that I was oddly psyched? My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Tim Brown, the former Los Angeles Times baseball scribe and Lakers beat writer, the former Yahoo sports columnist, and the author of a new book, The Tao of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game. This is episode number 322. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Tim. So basically, like me, you've had a long career in sports writing. And also like me, you you write books now for a living. And you have a new book out called The Tao of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game. You wrote it with former Brewer catcher Eric Kratz. And you kind of wrote it with him. You kind of didn't write it with him. You kind of used him as a vessel to explain the life of a catcher. And you've written books with Rick Ankeel. You wrote a book with Jim Abbott. I am always afraid, intimidated by the idea of collaborating with someone. You seem to like it. Why? That's a great question. Because after the Jim book and after the Rick book, I felt like I was done with collaboration. I wanted to write my own book. And, you know, writing in the first person can be an odd exercise, particularly I wrote both of those books while working, you know, in the business. So there was this thing about writing in my voice all day and then getting to the book and having to think about sort of writing in someone else's voice or at least uh, thinking in terms of, uh, well, that sounds too much like me, or that doesn't sound enough like him. The Eric situation came along like this. When I was a young writer covering baseball for the first time, and you've walked into a clubhouse for the first time ever, and you know what that feeling is. Terrible. Yeah. yeah it's, it's uncomfortable, and you feel like something horrible is going to happen, and everyone in the room is going to turn and look at you and know you're an idiot. Yeah. So I tended to roll toward the friendly faces, right? A guy who seemed welcoming would make eye contact. Mm -hmm. And in those early years, it's always seemed to be the backup catcher. And so I got this sort of vibe from them from the start. This was a decent dude. So I sort of had lugged that feeling about those guys with me for a long time. And as a beat guy for a long time, and then a national baseball writer for a long time, where you parachute into these clubhouses, where really, you may know a few guys. If you get lucky, some of the teams you've covered have traded guys into a clubhouse, and now you got some comfort in there. But it kept happening. And so in 2018, when I watched Eric Kratz in Milwaukee, sort of grab onto that ring for the first time, sort of nudged into that number one job and things like that. And I spent some time with him and I loved his story. And it occurred to me that as I was sort of leaving the game, that I wanted to write something that was sort of personal to me. And I thought his story and all these guys that I had bumped into in the past would make for something that I felt sort of passionate about. And while I felt passionate about those first two books, I was writing about their passions. 
And this time I wanted to write about my passion. And I felt like he could sort of embody this thing that I had in mind about not just a backup catcher, not just the job of the backup catcher, but the culture of the backup catchers. And this was the interesting part about this. So we finished the book and we're going through this process. And I thought to myself, if I don't put him on the cover of this book, I've just made him a backup catcher for as long as this book survives again. Right. So all these coaches, all these scouts, all these managers had always sort of pigeonholed him as a backup guy, an invisible guy, a guy in the shadows. And I thought, I'm not going to do that again to him. We had spent so much time and energy together. He had given so much of himself and his family toward this book. I thought it'd be cool to put him out there with me. And so, yeah, it feels like a collaboration. And I'm sort of glad for it this time. Yeah, I covered baseball for about six years. I've maintained very few contacts from that period as far as players. It's not like you wind up being best friends with a lot of players. I think of three. One is Sean Green, who doesn't live that far away from me, the former Dodger. Great guy. One of the best guys ever. Great. And then the other two guys are Sal Fasano and Brian Johnson, both backup catchers. It seems like in a weird way, if you're a backup first baseman, you're pissed off about being a backup first baseman. If you're the backup shortstop, you're like, I should be starting. It does seem like backup catchers in a way, in a way, kind of embrace something about that position. Um. I think they embrace, they come to embrace the day, right? I don't think they're that different in being unfulfilled broadly in that role. Uh, I think most of them believe that given 400 at bats in the course of a season, they could produce somewhere in their past. Maybe they had a cold streak. Maybe they had a tough year. You know, you go from single A to double A and you don't hit, and somebody with the team you're on makes this decision that you don't have sort of that big league stroke, whatever that is, that that gift of putting the bat barrel on the ball. And they basically come to live the rest of their lives based on that one decision. And somewhere along the way, they have to decide to give themselves over to this concept of the backup catcher, right? All those other things they do in the 21 hours around the game. So one of the interesting parts about the book was the last thing I asked dozens of these guys that I talked to, are you proud of your career? And if I were to sum up, if if I were to take, to use one quote, it would be, I wasn't always proud of it, When I retired, it took me a while to become proud of it. And and, and then I would say, well, what are you proud of about it now that you look back? And they always say, I think I was a good teammate. And so I do think most of them believe they've left something back there somewhere. And it wasn't anything they did, but they did learn to do the job that was handed to them today in the hopes that tomorrow maybe would be different. I just want to say my most backup catchery story of all time is 2002. I was covering the World Series between the Giants and the Angels. And Sal Fasano was on the Angels roster. He was signed with like two weeks to go. And he wasn't on the World Series roster, but I think he was in uniform, maybe as a bullpen catcher or something. They kept him around. And the Angels win the World Series. Sal's only been on that team for two weeks. And he sees me in the clubhouse after they won the World Series. And he comes up to me and he's like, Jeff, how are you doing, Jeff? He was so happy to see me because he didn't know any of these guys. Like he was there for two weeks and he'd known me for several years. And I thought that is the, that is a quintessential backup catcher moment. You've been around so many teams, so many places. You're happy to see the reporter. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know what? I think they become accustomed to giving so much of themselves away, you know, all the knowledge, all the effort, all the stuff. The next morning you look at the box score and they're not part of it so often. Right. But you know, they caught this guy's bullpen, the guy who threw seven shutout the night before and sorted out his slider for him. And the reliever they caught warming up for his inning didn't feel good about his cutter, but you talked him into the fact that it was actually pretty good. And, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that story says it all about these guys is that they are just very human in a world, professional athletes where that dehumanizes you if, if you let it. I think they just stay human. 
because I, they're so humble, right? Because they're all hitting a buck 97. And what's worse than that? That's just, that's just devastating. It's funny. I just saw that uh, the Yankees hired Sean Casey as their hitting coach. And I remember Sean invited the writers to his wedding. And Sean was not a catcher. He was a first baseman. But I thought that was the most backup catcher thing of all time. He invited the beat writers to his wedding. You know who invited me to his 40th birthday party was Horace Grant. There are a handful of guys out there who decide you're A, not the enemy. You're B, not some sort of ogre. And that you're a decent human being. And they like being around you, which is always weird, right? Very strange. (laughs) huh. Okay. Right. So you go do it, right? And you show up and you're like, hey. And every all his buddies are looking at you like, what are you doing? Are you covering this? No, I'm just here to have a beer. It is weird how we occupy different worlds, right? Okay. So you and I, we've been sports writers for a long time. And I think about being a young writer and seeing guys like whoever, Jack McCallum or Gary Smith or Rick Riley, and being in awe of them, right? And being like, holy cow, this guy's been around. And now you and I are writers who have been around a long time. And it's a weird thing that like you cover baseball for a long time. And in the clubhouse, most ballplayers don't give two shits about us. But in the journalism world, Tim Brown is a big name and Tim Brown has written books and Tim Brown. Is it weird to have a sustained, long, successful, high profile career in a profession? And yet the people you actually cover don't give two shits about you. (laughs) You know, there was a great lesson about that. There's a guy named Gordy Varell who covered the Dodgers forever. He must have covered the Dodgers for 30 years. And I happened to go on the Dodger beat. I was on the Dodger beat in 96. And it was the first year he was not covering the Dodgers. And one of the other veteran writers came up to me, he goes, we had been in spring training for like two weeks. He goes, you know what? Not one guy has asked me where Gordy is. And it was such a great lesson at the time. If you're lucky, they don't care about you because more likely they despise you without ever having met you. They just assume you're kind of a punk. I remember that was that day very well when he said that. And I was just sort of getting started and thinking, boy, make your own friends because there's none out here. Wait, what is that? I, I always ask this on the podcast, so I'm just going to jump to it right now. What's the worst asshole treatment you, you ever got from a ball player? Uh, I want to say I've been fairly lucky. Kobe Bryant and I had a rough time. He felt like I was very negative and I get maybe not fawning enough, but I mean, I he called me a snake. He called me the most negative mf he'd ever been around, which was funny because I was at the time on the same staff as TJ Simers. And I thought, I'm not even the most negative guy in this room. Right. <laughs> I remember Jeff Juden, of all people. Remember the old pitcher, Jeff oh, Juden? Jeff Juden was a nightmare. Yeah. He was like a a non-roster invitee into Yankees camp, I think, in 98 or 99. Yeah. And I hadn't written a word about him. For some reason, he decided I was a jerk. And he treated me like one. I'm like, I, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> what is happening here? You sort of get the guys if you if you you know if you write something critical. All right, this is going to be a, a an interesting run for a couple of weeks. You just don't get the guy who hates you for absolutely no reason at all. I just want to say, first of all, this is the only podcast in America in the year twenty twenty three that is discussing Jeff Juden. But I want to say, Jeff Juden pitched for nine teams over eight seasons. He was twenty seven and thirty two, and nobody liked him. And I always remember thinking like. If you're Jeff Juden, don't you want people to like you? Don't you want to be nice to people? Yeah, it's an interesting strategy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I mean, there's just some random dudes out there who, for whatever reason, decide we're at fault for them performing poorly. I mean, I think that leads to the question, Tim. Jeff Juden went 0-1 in two games with the Yankees. Is that on you? Yeah, yeah, I I wear that. I I don't think it was his, his head was straight. I may have wandered through the clubhouse before one of those starts. So Damn you. Yeah, it's me. I got it. Yeah. Jeff Juden, if you're listening to this podcast, Tim, Tim apologizes. Yeah. Joking. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I do um, remember going to the spring training facility one morning and pulling up to a stoplight and looking over and he was in the car next to me. And I just thought, Oh my God, he's going to like run me off the road or something. I was horribly uncomfortable surrounded by like 2000 pounds of steel. I thought, Oh, and he was a, a big guy. And when he got mad, he got really red and, oh, geez, uh, that whole experience was so wacky. 
I've actually thought you're, you wouldn't do this, but I could see myself doing this. I've always thought it would be a really interesting story to go back and pick like the five biggest assholes from that era, right? In baseball, we'll say. So Albert Bell, Jeff Juden, I hated Will Clark. I could not stand covering Will Clark, whoever it is, like five, John Rocker, you know, Bonds, and go back and write an article. Why were you so mean to me? You know, like what made <laughs> you so mean? Why were you treating me? I'm always fascinated by that. Like, look, because Sean Green actually said to me, he's like, we all get nicer once we retire. Especially if you retire and then become like a team broadcaster or something like that. Now, suddenly you're shoulder to shoulder with the guy and he's like, you know, your your aunt Nancy or something. Couldn't be nicer. How you doing? And then you just let it go. Right. You're like, "Ah, uh, how you doing? When you say that, I think Nomar. Like Nomar was Dude, very difficult that's to cover. the guy in my head. And, you know, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. So I remember Albert Pujols could be very difficult in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't ever quite figure it out because he was always great. It's a smallish media group that fawned over him for his entire career there. And I could never figure out. I don't understand. The people here love you. No one's ever written anything but nice things about you. Why are you so angry all the time? And I asked him that one day and he said, look, he goes, I get that people want me to be a certain way, but I can't play well if I'm just easy going and laughing and people coming up to me. He said, I just played better mad. And I said, okay, all right. If I got to wear that, it's fine. And by the way, Albert and I had come to a, a, a terrific relationship. So- that is interesting because I was thinking I recently had Bill Plasky on the podcast and he was talking about when he covered the Dodgers and Kirk Gibson was a nightmare to him. And he said uh, years later, when Gibson was a manager of the Diamondbacks, he apologized to him and he said, look, I had to be the mean guy. And I have to say, I know you're probably going to disagree with me. I don't really buy that as an excuse. I don't think you have to be an asshole to people to be a good baseball player. I just don't. Yeah. I mean, I wish it weren't true. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We, I can't, you know, most of the guys we're talking about, Jeff Juden excluded, were superstar types, right? Guys with everybody's looking at them all the time. Everybody wants a little piece of them. Everyone wants a little time. Hey, man, you got a couple minutes. I got a few questions for you. And I think they just come to sort of detest everything that's not the ball game. Yeah. And we come to represent that for them because we're the guys in their face, right? We're, we're, we're the guys walking up asking for stuff and they just get so tired of it. And you and I, at least I can't, I can't relate to these superstars in sports. I have no idea what it's like to be that good at something, which is why I so enjoyed two years of talking to backup catchers because there is some relatability there to the layman, right? You know, you can, you can understand it. So I just sort of let it go. And, and, you know, as a columnist, as a beat guy, it's horrible because you have to talk. You have to sort of bring that on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get hammered as a columnist. You're like, well, you don't want to talk to me. Fine. I'll, I'll, I'll write my own story. What I just want you to know, you said you don't know what it's like to be at that level, but we've always thought of you in the media as the Jeff Juden of sports writers. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. It's, it's probably why I treat stringers the way I do. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> in your book, chapter 10, you have a chapter where Johnny Bench's gold gloves came from. And I just want to read a second of this. You wrote, trouncing the National League as a big red machine in the 1970s, the Cincinnati Reds were accustomed to the occasional rudeness. They were hated and as likely feared in all the usual places, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. The grumbling from the bleachers, from the top decks, from otherwise nice folks who'd seen about enough of the powerful Reds and their garrulous manager would start early and last the night. From the top of the order, Pete Rose, booze, Ken Griffey, booze, Joe Morgan, booze, Tony Perez, booze. The crowds would stay at it through George Foster, Cesar Geronimo and Dave Concepcion. That was when the backup catcher knew it was his turn. When the folks at Shea Stadium, at Wrigley Field, at Dodger Stadium realized they'd miss someone. Johnny Bench wasn't playing. Batting eighth, number nine, catcher Bill Plummer. Booze. Not angry, exactly. Certainly not fearful. More like the people were disappointed. Bill Plummer got plaintive booze. I don't blame them, Plummer said decades later. They came to see John. And you wrote this really wonderful chapter about Bill Plummer, longtime backup catcher, who I actually picture from baseball cards as a kid, who later on helped convert Phil Nevin, who was the number one pick in the draft by Houston, into a catcher. And I am kind of fascinated. Your book is like a random maze 
of catchers I haven't thought of in years and some I have thought of. How do you decide as you work on this book, I'm going to focus on Bill Plummer? Well, I had a list of probably 200 possibilities. And I really wanted to talk to a backup catcher on a juggernaut team and a catcher who backed up a great, great catcher just to get a sense of what both of those things were like, you know, almost like, would you trade 200 more at bats a year for one of those championships? you know, one of those kind of things. And I got Bill on the phone. He's living up in uh, Northern California. And what I expected was to write a page about him. But the more we talked and then taking that to sitting down, the more I wrote, the more I thought I was sort of on to something with Bill Plummer because of everything about his first season in the big leagues. He, he, he got two at bats all year long. The starting catcher that year, Randy Hundley for the Cubs, started 156 games that year, different era. Yeah. And then he gets traded to the Reds where the Reds catcher was not only an all-star, but he it was younger than he was, which was when he realized, I guess I'm a backup catcher forever. And I just like the fact that he played tennis on the road with Hal McCoy, who was the beat writer for the Dayton paper. When he was with the Cubs, he was utterly convinced that Leo DeRocher, the manager, never learned his name. He would catch everybody's bullpen sessions pregame and then warm up guys in the bullpen during the game. And when that glove was broken in, he would hand it to Johnny Bench, who would go win a gold glove with it. I don't know. There was just something about him that spoke to me about this profession that I thought was really kind of cool. And then Bill, you know, had this long career coaching and managing uh, and things like that. I just thought sort of lifer dude that just sort of sat with me. And by the time I looked up, I'd written, you know, four or 5,000 words about him. I thought, okay, I guess that's a chapter. Of those catchers, how many did you have your list of 200 and something catchers? How many did you actually wind up talking to? I probably talked to maybe a quarter of those. Wow. At some point in the process, you're trying to track guys down. I never thought to myself, this is a make or break guy, right? And so you reach out, you reach out, you make some effort. And if they're not getting back to you, I just move on to the next guy. Right. Or if I'm having trouble tracking them down, PR department can't find a number or, and the former agent isn't around or things like that. I just moved on to the next guy. Um, because I just couldn't get so bogged down with with one dude that uh, it was going to hold me up. And, and then at some point, it was time to write the book. I had such a good time talking to these guys, Jeff. It was funny, good stories. I, I think they appreciated the fact that somebody in the media was calling them to remember that. The guy who hit 194 over four seasons. Not only was I calling him, I was sort of appreciating. It was, it was going to be an ode to the effort, which is what they had to show for whatever career they had. I just really think that the number one thing we have writing books like this going for us is the power of nostalgia. And in a way, Sean, what Sean Green said, which is we get nicer once it's over. And all of a sudden, instead of us being intrusive presences in their daily ritual, where people who want to talk about their greatest days and they're sitting home playing golf or doing whatever, watching the, the paint dry, and someone wants to talk to them about their highest moments. I just think that's a can't lose. Right. Right. You know, the question that I, every time I asked it, I thought, you know, 10 years ago, this gets me punched today. It's a really interesting conversation, which was what was going on with your hitting? Talk to me about your hitting. Why did you hit 204? It led into this long conversation about you get four at bats a week or six at bats a week. And, you know, you don't even, some days you don't even have time to take batting practice. And, you know, you get your three at bats and the team was behind two and you get pinch hit four. So there goes another at bat or two. And so it was just sort of really fascinating conversation. And they were so realistic now looking back. Some of them would just say, I was just a crappy hitter. So I was lucky to get to the big leagues doing that. I just got good at the other stuff or personal catcher type things or, or whatever. But sort of after five or six guys, I got really comfortable asking about it. It was like, tell me about why you couldn't hit at your age and with your experience, do you still get apprehensive or nervous asking certain questions or is that not something you really face anymore? Not so much outside of the clubhouse anymore. 
I think if I was to walk back into a clubhouse and have to ask hard questions and everything, I'd still be a little apprehensive. It's human nature, right? We're we're not really confrontational beasts. And again, I go back to those early days walking into a clubhouse. You don't want to be the story. And you don't know if a tough question is going to turn you into some sort of scene that's going to turn you into a story, especially now, you know, with the internet and all that stuff, it could, you quite easily end up on ESPN tonight being the guy who uh, Ryan Leaf berated. And you don't want that. That's, that's not what the job is, hopefully. Before we continue with two writers slinging yank, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Anna. And this is Casey. And you know us from the award-winning weekly radio show, We're We're So Crazy. Available only on KSCT Radio, the voice of UC San Diego. Question. If our station is only streaming and not actually on radio, are we a radio station? And if only 12 people listen to a streaming non-radio college radio show, does it exist? Do we even exist? And what's the meaning of life? Are pigeons really government satellites? Why is Black Forest cake so rarely served in a forest? Jesus Christ, get over your haughty college bullshit and just do the fucking ad. Ugh, fine. Buy your throwback goods at royalretros.com. They have hats and t-shirts and stuff. Did you know stuff derives from the Greek word stufian? Ugh, seriously, go back to college. You had a fascinating, fascinating career. And the first thing I noticed in researching you and going through the databases, Tim Brown, the Raiders wide receiver, comes up a hundred times for every one Tim Brown byline. It is impossible researching you. I'm actually serious. When you were going through your career, primarily in Los Angeles, primarily as Tim Brown was a wide receiver for the Raiders, would this shit happen all the time? When people ask me about that, I I think back to there was a period of time I covered USC football for three seasons, John Robinson, two, and like Keyshawn Johnson, Rob Johnson, guys like that were there. Leading up to to the Notre Dame game, what I found was the only use for being Tim Brown is that I could get the Notre Dame athletic director on the phone first try. His secretary would answer the phone and she'd say, can I tell him who's calling? And I would say, Tim Brown. She would say, oh, hold on. And so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but that was basically the only benefit. Now, the other side of it is probably... 400,000 times I've had someone say, oh, like the wide receiver. Oh, geez, you look different in real life. You know, like at the DMV, showing up at a restaurant with your reservation. If I didn't get it a couple times a day, it'd be weird. Have you ever interviewed Tim Brown? Yeah, there was, uh, I would, I jumped in on a couple Raiders games one year and actually did a sidebar on Tim Brown, leading with, the words Tim Brown, because I wanted it first for a kick to have by Tim Brown, daily news staff writer, Tim Brown, blah, 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 just because I was a goofball. As sports writers, I think we both know that if I asked Tim Brown, the wide receiver, what it's like being compared to Tim Brown, the writer, he would say, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I I have no idea who that is. I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always do. I try to find the earliest byline I can find from someone I have. And I have a LA Times, October 25th, 1985. Oh, were you interning or was this your first gig? Let's see. Uh, I might have just been stringing football games or baseball games or basketball games at that point. That was that may have been my first year with any sort of tagline or byline, you know, 25 bucks to go out and keep score to football game and and dictate two or three graphs. Were you in college at that point or were you done with school when you were doing yeah, this? Yeah, I think I, so I went to SC for a couple of years, ran out of money, got panicky, took a couple of years out and then went back to Cal State Northridge where it was cheaper. <laughs> so I think what happened was I started taking some journalism classes at Cal State Northridge and the Times was hiring stringers for football games. Did I crush it? Read you the lead. This is October 25th, 1985. Tim Brown byline. First Tim Brown byline I could find. Headline, Thousand Oaks beaten as two conversion tries fall short, 21-19. I'm sure you remember this game very well. Devastating game. For three quarters Thursday night, Thousand Oaks High couldn't buy a touchdown. That's news for a team that entered this week's action, ranked number four in the Times Valley top 10 poll, (laughs) trailing 21-0 to Channel Islands in the fourth quarter, however, the Lancers came alive with a furious comeback bid, but fell short 21-19. 
Uh, you know, it's that old standby, the uh, the panicked however. <laughs> when in doubt. Or so it seemed. <laughs> Probably standing at a payphone uh, on Westlake Boulevard in a gas station trying to scream over the the sound of whatever's happening in a gas station at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. You know what? Somewhere, Thousand Oaks is quarterback from the time. Don Nagelman is upset to hear that you did not take that game more seriously. <laughs> you, you've had an interesting, fascinating career. You wrote for the LA Daily News. And during that time, you did cover USC and you covered, uh, as you mentioned, Keyshawn Johnson. For those who may not know or just may know Keyshawn Johnson as, um, you know, a, a recently dismissed, fired, actually, sadly, uh, broadcaster at ESPN. The guy was kind of a collegiate phenomenon and covered oh. Sports Illustrated. I'm interested. What was it like covering Keyshawn Johnson at USC? Keyshawn was, I loved him. Great quote, cocky as hell. So I think my best Keyshawn story, it was the day of the OJ verdict. And I was in the sports information director's office. It was maybe late afternoon, I want to say, when the jury starts walking back in. And of course, you know, I'm at USC and it was me and the sports information director, Tim Tessalone and Keyshawn, three of us in that room with this tiny little TV watching what was going to happen. So the jury's coming in and we're all sort of quiet. This just felt like an enormous moment in LA and you know where USC is. It's not the greatest neighborhood mm -hmm. and the gravity of being there while this jury was coming in, knowing that the town was leaning in, in so many different ways. And I remember turning to Keyshawn and saying, dude, if this verdict doesn't go well, you're driving me home. So I was suddenly very afraid of getting out of that area. <laughs> That's awesome. And he said, I got you, man. And so when I think of Keyshawn, I think of that moment of me getting a little panicky about being in the wrong place in L.A. when that verdict went down. But I got to say, man, to this day, there are glimmers of other stuff, even just lately, like Shohei Otani is doing things like that. I have never seen a guy dominate games from that sort of place on the field like Keyshawn did. He was so much better than anybody else on the field. It was remarkable. He was a good NFL player. Frankly, surprised he wasn't better. Well, you also covered the Angels back then. You're the beat writer for the Daily News for the 1990 California Angels. And this is a team that finished 80 and 82 under Doug Rader. And yeah. a few things that fascinated me about this, I want to say their leading hitter and only guy with even a decent batting average was Luis Polonia, who hit 336. <laughs> no one else batted over 277 for that team. Again, the manager was Doug Rader. And Doug Rader was this old school, scrappy, hard nosed, managed the Rangers, kind of in that old era of managers who were kind of cowboys. And you're a young writer covering old school manager. Is that hard? Oh, uh, and you described him perfectly. Yeah, I was terrified. <laughs> Absolutely terrified. This was this is like a, a really scary guy. Big. I had a temper. One of my favorite moments ever is partway through that season or post game, another loss, one of the other writers. And it was always like deadly quiet for the first minute that we got in there because nobody wanted to ask the first question. And finally, one of the writers starts his question by saying, Doug, not to second guess. And Raider looks him square in the eye. He goes, you better fucking not. <laughs> I'm like, all right, and we're off. <laughs> uh, but I will say, along the way, he became one of my favorite people ever. He was so smart and so curious about stuff. We'd walk in and he would say, hey, what's Machiavellian mean? And, and it would start this conversation about he was a voracious reader, he had really interesting opinions on things. He was a really caring person. You know, he was sort of in that Jim Abbott book, we reconnected and we met in a lobby at like a Holiday Inn in Vero Beach. And he walked in sort of looking like Wilford Brimley 
And I just rem- remember having all these feelings that, that like he was just such a complicated guy, but, but in his heart, he just wanted to win so desperately. He'd be devastated with losses and, and would take it out on whoever asked the first question generally. Also, don't you think you, you learn as you get older? Certainly. Like I remember being a young writer and being terrified of like uh, Jim Fergosi, right? Jim Fergosi yeah. scared the shit That's out of me. good one. Rusty, yeah. hard nose, just like Doug Rader. And at the time, I think I really hated the guy because I was terrified. And you look back and think, number one, I just really didn't know how to approach. I was not ready to approach him in the way I should have. But number two, those characters are so much more interesting than some like by the book, boring, I don't know, Buck Showalter. I love the freaking crusty, pissed off, throw a pen at you, Hal McRae type guys. I love those guys in hindsight. Yes. And this is what the internet and social media has wrought is now you get those guys sitting in a room, in a press room with cameras running. And yes, what what it's done is eliminate that difficult moment of, you know, you're going to ask a difficult question and you know, it could get kind of ugly, but you have to ask the question. It's the right thing to do in that moment. And you hope that your relationship with the dude is going to be enough to maybe carry you through some kind of answer. Jim Leland in his manager's office before a game, laying on the couch, one cigarette lit and burning in an ashtray, another one in his mouth, in long johns with the knees blown out, answering your questions from there. It's gone now. Those things are, and it was so casual and it was interesting because those guys always, they didn't even have to say off the record because if they said something completely crazy or were very critical of a player, you just understood it was sort of off the record. I'll, I'll trump your Leland with, I was doing a piece when I was at Sports Illustrated on Lou Pinella and they said, Lou's in his office, go interview him. And I literally interviewed Lou Pinella as he simultaneously was taking a piss at the urinal eating a hoagie and smoking a cigarette at the same time. (laughs) That's awesome. And we've lost that now. It's all been polished and buffed up. And it's a shame because you don't, you don't get anywhere near the same relationships. I mean, when I first started, it wasn't that long ago. It was 30 some years ago. Now you would drink in the same bars as these guys. There's this unspoken rule about if it doesn't affect their play on the field, it doesn't matter. And that's all gone now. And, and some of the relationships are gone now. And, and it's very hard to get to know guys now uh, because they're so suspicious that we all, you know, we all look alike to them. We all sound alike to them. All the questions are the same. So it's, it's the, the job has gotten a lot harder on top of the fact that you got to write 14 times a day and tweet and do all this other stuff. A weird sort of bip on your radar is 1997. You cover the Cincinnati Reds. You go to Cincinnati, yeah. Cincinnati Inquirer. You covered the 76 and 86 Reds. Ray Knight's the manager. He gets fired. Trader Jack McKeon takes over. And what I love is I found a, a byline, July 22nd, 1997. Headline, primetime decides it's sitting time. New York fans taunt Sanders out of lineup. It's a byline by you. Deion Sanders, proud and confident, nonetheless knows when he's beat. This town can do that to people. After three defeats, two of which he took personal responsibility for, two drop fly balls and one hit and 10 at-bats, Sanders asked out of the Reds lineup Monday afternoon. They ride him here. They call him names, delight in his failures, and rue his occasional successes. Perhaps it is the work of Satan, as he suggested over the weekend. More likely, they just don't like him much for all of the reasons anyone likes or dislikes Deion Sanders. So you had Deion Sanders as a Red. Um, what was Sanders uh, like to cover? It was the year that he was bouncing back and forth through, I guess, the Cowboys. And so it was just... I was so out of my fish out of the out of water in Cincinnati. I was uncomfortable all year. Uh, I had gotten a job offer from the Newark Star Ledger where I went to cover the Yankees Mm -hmm. at the end of the 97 season. But I told the sports editor at the Star Ledger, I've been in this job for like two and a half months. I can't leave now. I was afraid it was going to ruin my career that I was going to be a guy who took a job and then left in the middle of the same season. He took the job and he said, that's all right. We'll hold the job for you. And I said, okay, great. So it just all felt very temporary. Uh, It was the first time 
that I ever covered a team for the newspaper that landed on everybody's doorstep. And that's why I took that job because I had been at the, at the LA daily news where you're sort of stomped all over by the LA times every day. And nobody really knows what you're writing or takes you very seriously. And I thought it's time for me. So I packed up my wife, now my (laughs) ex-wife, probably not unrelated, and two two small children and moved from Studio City to Cincinnati, spent seven months there. I mean, I just didn't do a very good job there, I didn't think. And then just bounced straight to New Jersey and felt much more at home covering the Yankees and and all that. There's an old saying, you know, happy... Happy wife, happy life. And also uh, take wife from Southern California to Cincinnati, Ohio. Not happy life. Yeah, probably the beginning of the spiral, probably. Going to cover the Yankees in New York for the Star Ledger. So obviously you had experience in L.A. And L.A. is a huge market. But New York, I always saw when I was covering baseball that the intensity, the pressure, you could feel it when you would cover the Yankees or the Mets, where you'd walk on the field and writers weren't really talking to each other. And there was a lot of elbowing and you'd have Yappy Lupica and you'd have the different beat writers and you had, you'd see Dave Anderson like descend from this. It felt insanely intense. And you come along when this team is just, it's the Jeter Yankees to Bernie Williams Yankees. Was that a hard adjustment coming from first from LA and then from Cincinnati, Ohio? That was the most at home I'd ever felt on a beat. Oh, it felt like I belonged there. I think because it was such chaos, you almost just became part of the chaos. And there was so much energy there. For the first time, I'm writing earlies. At the time, the Star Ledger was was hugely successful. It was a great writer's paper. I felt like I woke up in the morning, started writing, and got home at one o'clock in the morning having written all day long. And... I don't know. I just, I liked it. I love the competition. I love the fact that it felt legit. I felt love the fact that it felt like the center of the sports universe that team hardly ever lost. It was great. It, and, and I, maybe there was a part of it that I, I love being part of the pack, right? There was something really weird about, I mean, there's like 11 people traveling on that beat at the time. It was lunacy. And you described it so well. I would sit up in that press box and you'd almost feel almost like pulling you into the state, into this environment, this bowl of maniacal people and great team and those really veteran teams, guys you knew forever. And when you broke through with a guy covering that team, it felt like you'd really accomplished something. That team was fascinating. It was like a who's who of that era. Truly, 98, I'm talking about specifically, arguably yeah. the Jack Curry just wrote a book, you know, about yep. maybe the greatest team of all time. And among others, obviously, a Jeter, Bernie, Paul, Neo, Daryl Strawberry, Chuck Knobloch, Tina Martinez, Jorge Posada. You had Tim Raines, you had Chili Davis, you had Shane Spencer coming out of no. I mean, Andy Pettit, Hideki Arabu, David Cohn. The guy I'm fascinated by, because he hated my guts, is David Wells. David yeah. Wells hated me hated me. And I wonder what it was like to cover him as a B-Rider. I'm trying to keep a list of guys who hated you and I'm starting to run out of room here. <laughs> you know, it's that old thing. If every room you walk into stinks. Yeah, it might be you. Yeah. It might not be the room. Yeah. David Wells, great copy, right? There was always something wacky yeah. going on. I think the maddest he ever got at me. There were two perfect games thrown while I was on that beat. And they were both on Sunday afternoons at Yankee Stadium. And my deal with the sports editor was I will work every single game all year long, except for Saturday, Sunday home games. So, of course, the perfect games, cones and wells get thrown on Sunday afternoons, which means I got to write. You're not going to have some backup person write those things. And so I'm sitting at home in Westfield, New Jersey, and David Wells is throwing this perfect game. And of course, the office is on the phone with me. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Well, I somehow got David Wells' sister in San Diego on the phone and did this long piece about sort of her relationship with David and having, you know, heard about the perfect game. And it was the whole, you know, imperfect man throws perfect game story and her sort of like take on David and his rep and and all that stuff. Well, somebody 
had handed him the paper the next morning and he was irate that somebody was tracking down his family. So that was as mad as anyone's ever been at me <laughs> uh, for what I thought was like a cool little story, right? You know, you, I got your sister's name in the paper and it was different and whatever. And no, he was having none of it. None of it. I just want to say the reason he got mad at me, I wrote a Sports Illustrated story. It was a cover story about David Wells. And he was mad at SI. And he, he was polite to me. He said, I'm not going to talk to you, but if you stand in during the group interviews, it's fine. And my lead I found, right? I wrote my lead and it was, David Wells is fat, not fat with a pH, fat. He's not a work in progress, not a lug trying to shed some pounds, not a Weight Watchers washout. Over the past 13 years, since Wells broke in as a reliever with the Blue Jays, players and trainers and managers and general managers and owners have spent time, too much time, trying to convince themselves and the rest of the world that Wells was a fat guy in search of his skinny body. Nothing could be further from the truth. Wells is a fat guy who is content being fat. And if he's in search of anything, it's a beer. Coors Light in a bottle, please. <laughs> Everything about Wells is fat. Blah, 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 blah. And the point I was trying to make is like, he owns it and this is who he is. But I remember my wife reading that lead and being like, no, that's terrible. <laughs> you know what I've really enjoyed over the last half hour? You're reading leads that I wrote when I was 23. And then you pop the prose that's beautiful oh, it's and, terrible. Funny yeah. and all that stuff. I see what you're doing here. Um, <laughs> Got anything else for me on unlike, you know, four minute deadline on <laughs> rainy night at Thousand Oaks High School? The goal is to embarrass the other writer. Um, <laughs> wait, so you you did the Yankee beat. You go back to the LA Times. You, you, you were hired there as a national baseball writer. Yeah. Then in, in the weird twist, and the reason I actually interviewed for my book, I wrote a book called Three Ring Circus about the Lakers, where I talked to you, is you became the Lakers B writer. I go back. Ross Newhan was was a bit older. I mean, imagine like a newspaper thinking this for they thought, look, this is a guy who could become our national baseball writer. Let's get him on staff. Ross wasn't traveling quite as much. And we'll sort of groom slash get him ready for that national job that Ross had held for forever. And I was game for that. That sounded like a great freaking job. And Ross is a wonderful guy. So I get back there and I do that job for a while. I remember I was on the practice putting green at Lakeside Country Club for like some Jim Murray charity golf event. And the number two guy in sports was Dave Morgan. He comes up to me while I'm trying to figure out how to make a four footer or something. And he says, hey, Tim Kawakami just left to go to the Mercury News. Could you take over the Lakers just in the interim while we figure out what we're going to do on that beat? And I said, Dave, I haven't watched an NBA game in 10 years. I said, I, I, I'm aware that like there's a Shaq, Phil, Kobe thing going on out there, but that's as far as my knowledge goes. And he says, it's not forever. It may only be a few weeks. And he says, look, you just got off the Yankee beat. This is the Laker. It's the same thing. And I said, if you need me to do that, I'll go do that. And it lasted four and a half years. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed the challenge of it. I mean, I was never going to walk into a press conference or approach Phil Jackson and question him on strategy. Uh, that would have been, I, I would have been over my skis, but it was such a different experience. I was convinced after being around the Lakers for a month that they weren't, they weren't going to win a game. You know, I'd come off two championships covering the Yankees and all this cohesion in, in, in the eye of the storm and how it all worked and guys got each other's backs. And then I walk into this crazy, nobody likes each other. Uh, it was all about my ball, my minutes, my shots, my team, my money. And I thought, this is a train wreck. This is never going to work, you know, and they won three in a row. So I knew right that I knew nothing about how the NBA worked. I tell people all the time, I could have covered all those seasons and never seen a ball hit the floor. It wouldn't have changed anything. It was always about the personalities, the human beings, the, the the whole thing. And one of the other challenges about it was, you know, I'm a middle-class 
white guy who covers baseball. Right. That felt like wheelhouse to me. You know, baseball always been my favorite sport. I sort of got those guys. They sort of got me. We had similar upbringings and things like that. And now suddenly I'm, I'm cast into a place that, that I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to that music. I didn't grow up where a lot of them grew up. I, I didn't entertain myself the way they entertained themselves growing up. And so it was such a wonderful education about sort of this thing that I'd never really sat down and thought about before. And so the, that was the really cool part about it. the games themselves until the playoffs came along, I thought were boring with a few exceptions, but I, I just loved watching sort of Phil work and guys come around or not come around. And they would always bring someone, someone new in every year, right? It was Mitch Richmond or it was Isaiah Ryder or it was Carl Malone or it was, Gary Payton, they would always like take this crazy stew that was like bubbling and all that stuff and throw one more crazy ingredient into it. And it was just fascinating. It was it was really fascinating. All right, true or false, 2001, Jared Ryder, <laughs> Jared Ryder threatens you. Dude, so it was really early in the season and JR wasn't getting enough playing time by his estimation and one of these games ends and they're going into the laker locker room it was sort of a longish corridor and there's a couple doors on the left and they open the front door we all start to walk in and there's this yelling coming from one of these rooms and the door is wide open and we all look in and there's jr Ryder and mitch kupchak in a screaming match about, you know, I don't care who the coach is. I don't care how many championships he's won. And it was a thing. It was like a really a thing. They were at each other. And so, like everyone else, I wrote this scene of J.R. Ryder, who was going to come be this six-man, like, stud. And the team were already at odds, two, three, four games in, whatever it was. So, I didn't really give it a thought. You know, it's just one of those things that happens and, and they've all been through this before and you should have closed the door and, and you cover the whole Laker beat basically from the parking lot because you're not allowed in the locker room in the practice facility. And so you go stand by their car. Uh, they got to go home eventually. So I'm standing out there and a few of us, four or five of us are standing out there waiting on somebody, probably Shaq or Kobe or something. And JR walks out, has no comment to anything, any follow-up thing or whatever, walks out gets in his car and Howard Beck, who was covering the team for the LA daily news says, ah, that's it boys. I'm out of here. He starts to walk away. Well, he's walking by JR's car and I see him watching him walk away. And suddenly he stops and he turns clearly JR is like engaged with him. And I see him walk over to the window of JR's car. There's a conversation. And then slowly I see Howard Beck turn and point at me. And I'm like, well, that can't be good. Yeah. So this was the, you know, the whole reason I went to Cincinnati is being the paper that everybody's reading. Well, this was the paper that JR read that morning about, you know, this whole sort of dust up the night before. And he backs his car out, cruises up to where I'm standing and basically threatens me. I'm going to come get you. You know, I, why'd you write that? I got my eye on you now. So he drives off and I turned around, walked back into the facility, walked up to Mitch Kepchek's office and said, I think your six man just threatened me. And to Mitch's credit, he took care of it. By the end of that season, JR and I were good. But JR was not a guy to be trifled with, man. No. I mean, that was not a guy where, oh, well, he's just mad. No, this was a guy who was really scary. I actually have a piece in front of me from uh, January 29th, 2001, Tim Brown byline. Riders miss team flight. <laughs> it's 11 hours after J.R. Ryder dropped the last of his season high 24 points on the New Jersey Nets. <laughs> he stood at Los Angeles International Airport on Saturday morning <laughs> watching the Lakers charter flight leave for New York without him. <laughs> it's this whole story about J.R. Ryder. <laughs> I love yeah. guys like that. I always enjoyed covering guys like that because they're fun and they usually are talkative. Yes. Yes, sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I look, it was, again, that whole experience for me was about all these 
huge, huge personalities. I mean, there's nothing quite like an MBA ego. Your last job, job, job was you were, you were a writer for Yahoo for many years, actually. And eventually Yahoo had layoffs and you were among the layoffs and shit happens. And I wonder, like, because a lot of writers, as we age in this business, face this moment. 2021, you're let go by Yahoo. Do you have a moment of what the fuck do I do now? Or were you like, I'm just going to go into books and move on? Dude, I've had two years of what I'm going to, what am I going to do now? I tried to play it off, you know? Um, Everyone does, right? The tweet you see all the time is excited about the next chapter of my life. Right, right. I, I had one of those tweets, you know, yeah. something along the lines as well. You know, my golf game's about to get a lot better. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I thought the phone was going to ring the next morning and that someone was going to hire me. I had spent so many years doing this thing, uh, had a couple New York Times bestsellers, won awards, still had my moments of imposter syndrome and all that stuff. But I thought, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. Somebody's going to want a ball writer or a feature writer or a columnist or something. And the phone never rang. And you go through, you know, I mean, I, I think there's this sort of mild depression that sets in that, that you're just gone and nobody cares. And you know, I, I think that I spent some time trying to track down gigs and wondering what else I might be interested in. Fortunately, I think at that point I had the germ of, in fact, I remember Eric Kratz actually called me when he saw the tweet and he said, hey, are, are you okay? And I even played it then. I said, hey, try to think of it now as you now have a full-time writer on this book. So fortunately I had that and I had already signed this a two book deal with Hachette and was like, all right, well, I guess I have time to do that. But uh, yeah, it was, I, I was sad and I was confused and, and sort of bummed and and we've all had buddies go through it. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I should have called that guy more often or whatever, because he felt this way and I felt lost. You know, the weird thing I kept thinking about was like, nobody thanked me. And I know that's like a really ego-y thing to admit to, but when I got to Yahoo, they had trouble getting credentialed on a Tuesday night in Kansas City right. because no one knew what Yahoo, what are you talking about? Yahoo what? And by the time I left, we had two seats in every World Series press for every game. And I felt like, you know, Jeff Passan and I in particular had built this thing into something that Yahoo could be proud of, that I could be proud of, that Jeff could be proud of. And for it all to end, you get a phone call from a guy you've known for 25 years, and he just reads from, you know, something he got from HR to avoid any sort of legal issues or whatever was going to happen. He's just reading this script to me, and then I hung up the phone. And that was it. That was Farewell, Tim Brown. Thanks for all your hard work. Thanks for busting your butt. Thanks for, by the way, killing yourself over the COVID, no access, trading in all of all of the resources and, and relationships you had. And I was really, I was bummed, man. I was bummed for a long time. February 2nd, 2021, Twitter, Tim Brown. So just got off the phone with the boss. The good news is my golf game is about to get much better. The better news is I get to see what else is out there for me. Strange days. I've been so lucky. Thanks for everything. See you out there. Be well, be kind and keep going. And I definitely, I have a friend in the business and we talk about these tweets all the time, the excited to see what's coming next tweet. And if you read between it, you know, it's like, fuck, what is this? This business model is really disconcerting yeah. right now. And now as time has passed, what I think about is you look around and the fact that I got, I mean, what was the first byline you read from 1985? Yeah. to 2021, that's about as good as, as it gets. How lucky was I? It's a bummer I didn't get to ride into the sunset and have some person that I worked very hard for shake my hand and say, thank you. And maybe that's just a weakness on my part. But all in all, there are 31-year-old copy editors who a year and a half ago bought their first home, had their first kid, and they're getting laid off. So yeah. 
for me to complain now at uh, you know at 60 years old having had that kind of run it's a little bit pathetic on my part it, it worked out i'm proud of the book working on another one and uh found a place to live that i like and and so you you sort of keep going right and you don't live in ohio yet yeah Good point. next book the 1997 Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> I was there. Yeah, I was there. Um, well, Tim, the book is great. I'm a huge fan, a huge admirer of your career. I just think you've done it the right way for a long time. And um, there's nothing wrong with being a full-time author, damn it. Nothing. <laughs> it works out, I promise. <laughs> I'm going to call you every Friday for that uh, <laughs> little pep talk. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Dude, this is a joy, man. You're a stud. Uh, I got to figure out how to write as often and as well as you do. So um, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Tim Brown, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Tim on Twitter at by Tim Brown and by the towel of the backup catcher playing baseball for the love of the game, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.